0: Thank you, guys. Good morning. How are we? Glad some people came in the snow. You never know what the weather's going to do. Uh, good to uh, be back with you. Uh, had a couple weeks off um, from preaching, and that's always always weird. I actually do enjoy it. And um, but thank you, Andy, for um, jumping in, filling in. And um, we're going to be finishing up Nehemiah uh, today. And so if you have a Bible turn with me to Nehemiah, we're going to go to the last chapter, Nehemiah. 13 and also just want to thank everybody for your kind words and uh, we just if you didn't know i'm one of the pastors here and we had a child uh number four which is terrifying uh there's a lot of them uh let's just get let's just get it out there um uh but thank you for all your kind words and meals and uh and it's been such a a blessing and our, our goal is to stretch out the meals for another eight months um so we'll be sending that out soon Uh, I don't want to have to cook ever again um, for the sake of my family. So um, my wife's cooking is good, but we've enjoyed uh, all the meals and the leftovers. And so thank you for that um, uh, kind gestures. Uh, So uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read just the first 14 verses or so. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. It's page 409 in your chair Bible there. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but the first 14 or so. And then I'm going to kind of summarize a little bit of it. Uh, it's kind of a long chapter, and uh, we'll, we'll jump in together. So Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in, in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite would ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing." As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Elishabib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the ties of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions of, for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, uh, excuse me, King of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I was confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses and I appointed a treasure over the storehouses... Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, uh, and Padiah of the Levites, and the assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. This is the word of God for us uh, this morning. And and so as we, we kind of land the plane with, with Nehemiah um, in, in typical Israel fashion, it's, it's negative. <laughs> it, it doesn't go well. It's kind of like that movie. You get to the end, you're really excited. You know, it's going to be a happy ending. The, 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 the guy gets the girl, and then it doesn't, doesn't happen. Because if you've been following along and if you've been um, reading with us, is, is just before this, a few chapters before this, Israel, typical Israel fashion. We love you, God. They've recommitted themselves. They've, they've set themselves apart. They, they want to worship the one God. They want to obey God. They, they've rebuilt the temple. They've, they've rebuilt the city. Everything is great. Things are back in order. The word of God has come back into play. They're like, yes, God, we love you. We're in. And that lasts for about five minutes. And we don't know the exact timeline, but what we what we catch from our text this morning is that Nehemiah, who uh, who is the one who started all of this and who was the one who was the, the main key player in getting Jerusalem rebuilt and getting the temple rebuilt, has gone back to his job um, with the king. And so it's about a thousand miles journey. And so we don't know how long he was there. We don't know how long he, he was gone, but, but he was gone. And then now he has come back from permission from the king to check out their work and see how things are going and they've begun to go back right to the way things things were and when i became a, a christian uh, about 20 years ago uh, there, there's a hymn and we sing it here but come thou fount of every blessing you guys you guys know that one and there's a line that says prone to wander lord i feel it to leave the god i love right and I remember seeing that for, for, for many, many years. And then over time, as I began to, to follow Christ, I realized that following God is not easy. And I didn't hear a lot of sermons on that. I actually heard a lot of sermons on it. It's just kind of a roller coaster up into heaven. And we just progressively, it just gets easier and easier and easier. And no one talked about the doubt. And no one talked about the fear. And no one talked about seasons of dryness and, and what they call the dark night of the soul. I didn't hear many, many sermons on that. But, but as I read Nehemiah, as I read the stories of the Old Testament, as I see the disciples in the New Testament, I find great comfort and great courage because just like Israel, just like us, they're part of our family, just like the disciples who walked with Jesus. I mean, h- how much closer do we need to get to God? I mean, they, they followed literally in the footsteps of the rabbit, like the dust of his feet were on his face, and yet they still were clueless. I find great comfort in that that despite that, God is still faithful, God is still gracious, God is still kind, and God still is going to make sure that his plans always come to fruition, even despite us. And so I wanted to spend a, a few moments this morning looking at, at Nehemiah and just kind of, kind of briefly summarizing kind of what has gone wrong and then, then what can we kind of pull from really the whole of the book, kind of summarize the whole of the book and then what are some kind of applications of, uh, of uh, going on from here because I think what we learn in Nehemiah is that every generation is going to go through times of spiritual decline. That's just the reality, right? Let I me mean, read the New Testament. Like again, Men and women who followed Christ, and within a few years, they've already forgotten what the gospel is all about. They're already fighting each other, right? Revelation, these five churches that had forgotten their first love. And so if if they're that close to Jesus, and we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus, I would say that every generation is going to have seasons of spiritual decline in us as individuals and us corporately. And so there's always times where God has to call us back to him. And that's a little bit of what we, we see in, in Nehemiah. And yet there's always hope. So what went wrong? Just a, just a kind of a brief overview. We'll look at some specific things here. But, but look what went wrong. Now what's interesting is look, look at how chapter 13 kind of opens. And again, this is, we don't know the full timeline. But, but on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite would ever enter the assembly of God. And he's actually reading from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, 3 to 5. And so they have some kind of assembly. But notice when it gets to verse 3, it says, um, um, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And then it goes to verse 4. Now, before this, Bib the priest. Now, so there's kind of this something happened before, but now they're reading the law. They're gathering together. Again, remember Andy walked through um, all these great passages in and, and, and Nehemiah 8 and 9 and 10 and, and all these, these scriptures that the law was read, right? They had, they had lost the, 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 the Torah, the, 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 the core teachings of the Old Testament were gone. And when they began to read the book of the law, when they began to read the scriptures, people were confessing their sin. They were worshiping the true God. They were realizing they weren't following God's, God's commands. But it's, it's really strange. So, so why this Deuteronomy 23? What, what does that have to do with, with their history? Well, he's, he's going back to, to history when there was a time when Israel was trying to pass through the desert and they ran into these Ammonites and these Moabites. And they were supposed to let them through. They promised, hey, we'll give you water, we'll give you bread, and then what happens? Well, they they didn't do that. Actually, that's what the text says, and that's what Deuteronomy 23 says as well. It says, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to to curse them. And so they even had this false prophet that was going to speak on behalf of God, but really wasn't speaking for God in the first place. But then it says something rather unique. It says, yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And Smart people, scholars, theologians kind of debate, well, what does that actually mean? What is God talking about? Because it, it didn't go well. It was, they, they were supposed to pass through, and, and, and they were supposed to have provision from the, these people, but, but God made a provision and said, hey, I don't want you interacting with these people. They broke their commandment. They broke their word. Don't intermingle with these people. But what's happening is that now in Israel, in Jerusalem, is these nations are coming in. They're starting to mingle with them. They're starting to intermarry. And and this kind of sets off kind of what is going wrong with Israel at this point in their story. But what is the grace in that? Is there grace in that? Well, do you remember who was a Moabite? Ruth. Wasn't Ruth a Moabite? I see three heads nodding. Yes, she was a Moabite. It's a Participation Sunday. Yes, she was. Say with confidence. Yes, Ruth was a Moabite pastor. Of course I knew that. So so where's the grace? Well, where's the grace? Is If you look at the genealogy of of what apparently seems to be all the screw-ups and all the failures of, of Israel and all the people that didn't do what God wanted them to do, here's the shining light Ruth who worshiped the one true God. And she was part of this tribe that sold them out years and years ago. And if you read the genealogies, you see Ruth, and you see these Rahab, a prostitute. And you see all these men and all these women that failed God, and yet they're part of the family of God, because God's family is a family of grace and mercy that even the screw-ups are welcomed in. And so even in the midst of, of all the things that are going wrong, as we'll see a few more examples in, in, here at the end of the chapter, is that, that God's even taking cursing and turning it into blessing he's taking disobedience and turning it into grace and mercy that people even from the wrong side of the tracks are welcomed in because that's who our god is and i find so much comfort i mean we read the old testament and i think sometimes we 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 want to take off the rough edges of the scriptures but why do that because this is real life this is how things are this is how you are. This is how I am. That We're broken. We're fallen. We're, we, we, we struggle. We have doubts. We have fears. Life isn't the way it should. We look at We watch the, the news. And we see all the things that go on in our world. And we realize it's not the way it's supposed to be. And yet God is in work right in the midst of it. So, so they, they read the law and then they kind of set up. So, but notice this, I mean, it gets a little bit sad and funny at the same time, but, but notice, you remember Tobiah, he, he's a little character. That's always giving Nehemiah a hard time. Every time Nehemiah wants to rebuild something and do something, this guy, Tobiah comes in. He's like, Hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, you shouldn't be here. And and so here, here is in verse four, that they begin to defile the temple. So he says, N- "Now before this eliisha of the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house for our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the ties of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandments to Levi, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So if you want to put that in vernacular terms, basically this Levite, who is the one who's supposed to uh, provide the worship of God's people, is related, he has some kind of relation, we don't know exactly what the relation is, to this guy Tobiah, who doesn't want want, um, Nehemiah or God's people to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, but here's Tobiah, he basically builds him an apartment in the temple. (laughs) That's basically what's going on here. He builds him a room in the temple, like the place where they're supposed to do offerings and, and, and sacrifice and worship God correctly and rightly. He builds him in a little apartment for his relative Tobiah, the one that wanted nothing to do with God or with his, his people. Now, why does this matter? Well, it, it matters in, in a lot of ways, but I mean, this is just a, a form of nepotism, isn't it? It's kind of like, well, hey, I guess God did what he was supposed to do. I guess these people are pretty strong, and Nehemiah pulled it off. Why don't we just join them, right? I mean, there's money there now. There's people. The city's repopulated. Here's Tobiah, who was the one that was so resistant, and you can't do this, and trying to, to thwart Nehemiah's plans. And here he is in his little apartment, actually in the temple, hanging out. A little bit of nepotism there. I mean, fault on both sides. Tobiah and the priest, he knows better, right? Of all people, the priest knows you can't defile the temple. There's strong commandments that if we do that, God's going to take them out, right? And, and yet this is what's going on. They're re- re- reverting back. But you see, what, what's going on here is the bloodlines of relationship of, 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 for these guys is becoming more important than the, the bloodline of the covenant that God made with his people. That this priest is selling out the covenant. you remember covenants in the Old Testament? They made it with blood. There always had to be a blood sacrifice that would seal it and make it true and right. I mean, you even see that way back in the Old Testament when, when, when they would walk through the middle of a sacrifice to seal it with blood. But now human bloodlines are becoming more important than the covenant that God makes with his own people. I, I, I thought of this the other day. I, I, um, I have the, the privilege of uh, coaching my son's basketball team Fourth and fifth graders, um, which is a blessing and a curse. Um, and one of the things I try hard to do as having a, co- a son on the team is not to treat him any differently than the other kids, right? Actually, a kid came up to me the other week. He's like, Noah's is your son? I didn't even know it." You know, and, and I try to treat him, you know, like I would any other. I don't, I don't favor him. I don't, I don't try to say, "Hey, well, he's my son, and he should get all the playing time and those those kinds of things." But, but what I what happens with nepotism is that, that things go really wrong when we take the, the individual and we, we, we esteem them or we lift them up higher than the, the bigger family. Things usually go, go wrong. And, you know, when I talk to the, the team, I'm always talking about it can't just be about you, especially in basketball. It's a very much a team sport, and you have to work together, and you, you just you can't be one-on-one. It's like every kid thinks they're LeBron James, and, and, you know, I could just take the ball down and just score every time. But you realize you've got to pass the ball. You've got to work together. You've got to think of the team more than just yourself. And like any sports analogy, right? I mean, if you want to win championships, right? Uh, unfortunately, not the Patriots, but Andy's still mourning and um, crying in his office most days. But, um, but you know, for the Eagles or whoever, or whatever your favorite team is, the best teams always think of the whole, not just the one part. It's a little bit what Jesus said in Matthew 10.35 when he talked about families. And in Matthew 10.35, he says that if you want to be my disciple, you have to love me more than you love your own blood. More than you love your own mother or your father or your brother or your sister. Now, why, why does Jesus have those hard words in Matthew 10? Because he doesn't like mothers and fathers, even though he's commanded us to love our mother and our father? Of course not. Because he doesn't think we should love our siblings? Of course not. But he's saying that it's not going to work unless, you, unless I'm ultimate, unless I'm central in your life. All those relationships are going to break down. The same way, if this covenant, if, if, if the worship of me and the, the trust in me is not primary, guess what's going to happen? Well, it can happen just like Tobiah and just like the priest. You can choose bloodlines over me. That if I'm not central of your affections and your life and your devotion, things will go bad and they'll go bad, bad often. And so we see that a little bit. What is going wrong here is that the the defiling of the temple and and these bloodlines are are getting stronger and they're not thinking about God and his commandments and his covenant that he just made with them even a chapter earlier. But we also see that the the covenant is neglected in a a very specific way. If you saw that in verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his, each, to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, why in the house of uh, God forsaken? And I gathered them together, set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses these uh, particular men. Because remember, as Andy talked about a couple or last week and the week before, is, is that the, the Levites were assigned these apportions, these, these grain offerings, these tithes, to support the work of the, the, the Levites, the ones who were going to, to craft and shape the worship of God's people. But now they stopped giving. They stopped sending in their offerings. Now, the reason I say the covenant's being neglected, because in chapter 10, if you go back to chapter 10, this is part of the covenant. This is part of the commands that God gives to his people. We see that in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, and his rules and his statutes we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters and our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Which is very interesting because they're breaking every single one of these. You're to bring in your offerings for the priests. You're not to intermarry with other couples. Now, again, that's not ethnically. That's just people who follow Yahweh. It would be the same today. Why we don't want to be ethnically yoked. I mean, imagine having a marriage where you're not yoked together. If Christ is our, our, our joy, our love, our center, right? We, we want to walk with someone who loves the same God we do. It's, it's to keep, that. that's why God had these provisions early on. You can't have other people worshiping other gods and you're worshiping the one true God and they're worshiping other gods. It's gonna divide the whole country and the whole nation and their whole mission. The nations won't come in because we're kind of have this mixed worship thing going on. But this this covenant is is neglected. Now why this is, is essential is because remember this is Old Testament. So we have the sacrificial system, right? We bring in animals, we we sacrifice them in the altar to atone for sins, right? This is pre-Christ, that Christ hasn't come to be our one final ultimate sacrifice, our one ultimate sacrificial lamb on the cross, right? That's what all this is pointing to. But this is what they're having to live with, right? And so if they're breaking that commandment, guess what? Right relationship with God is not happening in their context. If they're not worshiping God rightly, if, if Tobiah's hanging out in his apartment in the temple and taking bribes from his brother or cousin or whoever, however they were related, if the offerings aren't coming in so that the Le- Levites can help them lead worship and, and worship God rightly, then what's happening? They don't have a right relationship with God. That's what this was about. That's why when they came and rebuilt the city, what was the first thing they rebuilt? The temple. Because that's going to be the central of our life together. That's what's going to drive us. That's what's going to shape us as God's people. They could have started somewhere else, right? Secure the, the gates and, and let's, let's get some businesses going. Let's get some money flowing through this place. But what do they say? They say, no, temple is going to be the place that we're going to start so that we can relate to God rightly. Now we know as post Jesus resurrected Jesus people that our worship is different. We thank you. We don't have to bring, you know, birth of the cow in here this morning. We didn't have to bring our lambs in the back of our minivans this morning. They've been messy and bloody, but hey, we would have done what we had to do, but now that Christ has come, we can worship Christ by faith here and now he fulfilled all those sacrifices. He spilled his blood for us, but we still come with with reverence and awe. We still lay down our sins, right? We still bring our offerings and we give our lives to him. It's no different. It just looks different. But the heart posture is still the same, right? We don't don't come to God flippantly as if he's, well, he's Jesus now. He's buddy-buddy, right? Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. And yes, he is a friend, of course, but he's God. He's creator of all things. He's redeemer of all things. We, we come trembling and humble before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so the temple's being defiled. The covenant's being neglected. They're also breaking of Sabbath, which is so sad if you know the Old Testament at all. Here's why. Why did Israel get thrown into exile? Do you know what their main sin was? Anybody? Breaking of Sabbath. I mean, it was a command that was all over the scriptures time and time again. It was like, well, why Sabbath? Why, why take one day a week and make it holy? Well, we, we go back to creation, the Genesis account. God created in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and he, he gave God's people this day to set apart, to make it sacred. Now, we don't have to be legalistic about Sabbath. My wife and I and our family we try to do Mondays because I, I work on Sundays, most Sundays. And, 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 but it's a day that's supposed to be a little bit different than all the other days. For a lot of you, it is Sundays. It's a day of worship, a day of rest. It, it's, it's, a, it's a day to, to make it look different than all the other days. But they break the Sabbath. Now, how do they break the Sabbath? We see that in verse 15. In those days, I saw Judah, people treading on the wire. Wy- Treading wine presses on the Sabbath, so they're working, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. And then we keep reading, that's, that's what's happening. They're, they're working and they're selling, and, they're, and he's saying, you, don't, you need to take a day off. You need to take a day to worship and to rest and to acknowledge me. Because Sabbath was always meant to be for God's people a way to say who ultimately is in Control. And the answer is not you and it's not me. That our God is. That our God is ruling. Our God is reigning. That even when we go to Hebrews and this, this one final ultimate Sabbath rest that we find now in Christ, that eternity is coming. We need to have a, a day where we can shout from the rooftops and say, Our God is, is, is alive and He's ruling and He's reigning and everything's going to be okay, even if I don't check my email. It can wait. Can wait. Right? So it's this rhythm of six days of work, one day of rest. And it may it's gonna look different for, for everybody, but that's what they, they were they were working, they weren't trusting in God's provision because what does that say when we work instead of rest? I gotta make it happen. Now I know we live in a different day. I totally get it. Some of us have to work on the weekends, some of us have to work all the time, sometimes we can't get days off. We I, I totally understand that. But there's ways we can find Sabbath in our lives and say, I'm going to shut it down because I want to remind my own heart and my own soul of who sits on the throne and that God is the one ultimately who provides. And he does. I remember in college, I was challenged by a pastor to start doing Sabbath. And I remember in college, I mean, I wasn't the greatest student, but I did study occasionally. Um, But I I worked a lot of jobs, and I just had a lot going on. I was serving in some ministry and doing some other things. And and, and I remember him saying, hey, Ryan, you need to take a day off. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? I can't take a day off. These papers don't write themselves, big guy. Even though I was a total procrastinator and using road the night before. But but I started doing it very reluctantly. And here's what I found. A couple things. One, none of the work suffered, <laughs> which I thought was going to happen. None of it suffered. Things still got done that needed to get done. It was like God was giving me in those six days more grace to do what I needed to do so I could take that day off. I found actually more energy. I found myself rejuvenated because I took that one day just to focus on, on the Lord and to worship with, with my church family and to kind of say, I'm going to make this day a little bit different than all the rest. And say that acknowledge that God is the one on the throne, that God is the one in control. It's not, you know, the, the world's going to still spin on its axis and things are still going to get done if Ryan doesn't do what he needs to do or, or check that email or do whatever, right? And maybe you found that to be true as well. At first, it's kind of, oh, this is really hard. But we shut it down and we realize it's a gift of grace to us. So the breaking of, of Sabbath... And then we mentioned the the intermarriage between Israel and pagan nations. As I mentioned, it's, it's it's not has nothing to do with ethnicity. It's not you can't marry other ethnicities. But it was those who follow Yahweh, those who follow God, and those who don't. The the whole point was, how can you worship God purely and truly? How can we be a light to the nations if if we're married to someone who doesn't love the same God that we love? And we saw we saw that in verse twenty, verses twenty three and twenty eight, down to twenty eight. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so, it's confusing to those who are looking in and watching. Right? Wait, you—who do you worship? You worship the God of Israel, or do you worship the God of Ammon and? Moab and, and all these other I, I'm really confused here and that was the whole point is when they were rebuilding the temple when they're rebuilding the city was that they could begin to worship God again that's why the word of God came back in right they they had fallen into idolatry they were worshiping all kinds of things they were calling on all kinds of different gods and, and I think it's hard for us in the Old Testament especially when we read as people today when we read the Old Testament is to forget that around Israel at all times are all these different tribes and different nations worshiping different gods so, their temptations were always great. It wasn't just Israel in the desert, kind of by themselves in this little commune, and no one else around. And there were all kinds of, of nations around and all kinds of false worship happening all the time, just like our day today, right? Not everybody follows Christ. And we're tempted just like, like Israel to fall in, right? And those gods look a little different, you know, the self help God of, of Oprah. The, the God of the American dream, more is better. Accumulate, accumulate. The God of self, just need a little more self-esteem, and my life will be better. But those temptations are great for all of God's people. So I, I don't want us to read the, these kind of examples of how Israel's now kind of turning back to the, the former ways and think, silly Israel, really? Are we doing this again? Because that is in all of our hearts. Right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. To leave the God I love. Now, as a church and myself personally, I don't believe that you can lose your salvation. I'll say that boldly, and I think scripture is very clear you can't lose your salvation. But I know we can drift. And I know we can become spiritually dry, and I know we can stumble. It's not all about us. It's not about willpower. And I got to keep the faith and I got to, you know, muster it up. But I know we all go through seasons of deadness and dryness. Just like Israel, just like the disciples in the New Testament, just like the five churches in Revelation, just like the writer of Hebrews saying, Be careful that you don't drift. Even more now, even more so for us. We have Christ now. They didn't have Christ. They didn't have the resurrected Christ. We have the full revelation. We know what happened and how it happened that Christ has come. We have the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul will still say, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. As my pastor friend used to say, we all leak. (laughs) We all leak. So what does Nehemiah teach us? What can we learn as a whole? You know, the story ends, it seems tragic, it seems, you know, like they've gone back, they've gone back to the old ways, the old, you know, they're wandering again. What, what is, is going on here? Is there something that, that we can kind of look, take a step back, look at the whole book and say, okay, what can we learn from that? And then are there some, some practices that we can even implement into our own lives in our own churches? Well, I think there is a, a couple of things I've already mentioned is one is we're, we're all going to, to spiritually wander. Until Christ returns, it's going to happen. We, we've seen it biblically, we've seen it historically, right? The, the great revivals that we, we've even seen historically, right? They, they come and they go, don't they? We saw it in, you know, go back to the Reformation, for example, right? The Reformation ended at some point. The first great awakening, the second great awakening, the Azusa Street revivals in the 1900s all went away, right? There was revivals in, in, um, in uh, Ireland and there was revivals all over, you know, in Africa, South America, even today. I mean, we see those things come and go and then we see the next generation come and maybe some false doctrine come in or some prosperity comes in and they begin to spiritually decline. It happens and it will happen again and again. But what's so fascinating about Nehemiah, and, and, and I don't know if Andy touched on it specifically. I was paying attention. He probably did. I just maybe nodded off for a second. But, um, but in chapter 12 of Nehemiah, there's a little hint here of where Nehemiah is headed and what it's pointing to and what it wants us to see. And it's, it's very fascinating if you slow down and kind of read what the writer is saying, what Nehemiah is saying. He gives us a little hint because something's missing And there's a longing that God's people had in the Old Testament that wasn't fulfilled in their time, that would come later. Notice with me in in chapter 12, verse 24. They've been given this covenant, they've, they've been tasked, they've dedicated the wall, they've been set apart. He says, hey, you know, this is how you're to love me and worship me. Here's all the stipulations. And then you kind of read through 12, and it says, And the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherabiah, Jeshua, the son of Catamiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Interesting. David. Okay. Well, we know David... Died a long time ago, right? David was the king; he's long gone. Andy mentioned that last week, right? And kind of gave us a recap, the overview of, of Israel's history, right? David, David's long gone. I mean, they're saying David as David, the man of God. Okay, interesting. Well, go go to thirty-six, and his relatives. He gives all these relatives and and the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Okay. 37, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And then we see in in 45, and they performed the service of their God in the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. What, What does David have to do with all this? Now I know if you've read the scriptures and you know the story or maybe where I'm going, is who's going to come in the line of David? Anybody? If you answer Jesus, you'll be usually 50 percent right, so just say Jesus. In and doubt, just say Jesus, you'll probably get it right. The son of the man of God, David, there's someone who's still missing. You see, the the rebuilding of Jerusalem, it was the city of David. The temple was all about David, but but not about David and worshiping David, but someone who was going to come like a David-like king and warrior that would fulfill all of these promises. There was a longing deep in their bones. They knew their Old Testament. They knew it backwards and forward that there's going to come someone like David to fulfill all these promises that God's been making for all of eternity, but he has not come yet. He has not come yet. Remember, we're only about 400 years before Matthew, or before the, I should say, before the birth of Jesus. There God goes silent, and we have Malachi, and then we have the, the silent period where God is, seems to be, be gone and seems to be not speaking, and what is going on, and when is all this going to be fulfilled, and when Jesus comes on the scene, we see Drew, the Jews are just a mess politically and religiously. They've forgotten their first love. They're, they don't understand the commands of God. They don't understand how this, this works, and Jesus comes in the perfect time a little over 400 years later. And in the first line of, and if you're a good Jew and you know your Bible backwards and forwards and you read this genealogy, genealogies, I know when you get to your genealogy in your, your quiet time, you're just like skim, right? Don't lie, it's church, you can be honest. The Lord knows your heart. We skim, right? I don't know what all these people have. But for a genealogy for a Jewish person it's saying, who is this person? What family are they a part of? Because family was everything. Why should I listen to this person? Who's your daddy? I'll tell you if I'm going to listen to you or not. That's essentially what a genealogy does. So in the first line of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Someone was missing David. But someone who would come in the line of David, not like David, a very different kind of king. Not a king who would destroy his enemies, but a king who would love his enemies and teach us to do the same. A king who would forgive. Not a political ruler, not a religious ruler, not someone who's starting a new religion, but a warrior king, a loving king, a humble servant who would lay his life down, even his life unto death for his people. This king would become all that Israel could never be. This king would, would be the temple that they longed for, but it wouldn't be in, in one geographic location. It would be in himself. and Then he would make a bunch of temples his people, that he would be king of kings and he would be lord of lords, who would rule and reign over all things and all people, this king would come to be everything that we could never be, that Israel could never be. So, rebuilding the city of David, rebuilding the temple, was a pointer to a one like David who would come fulfill all of these promises. Now that's the beauty of us being on this side of the resurrection is that the Old Testament people they knew and the Jewish people and our our forefathers knew that there was a Messiah who was going to come and that was their hope and that was their longing. Their hope and their longing was not in just simply a new temple and a new geographic location but it was about a Messiah who would come to restore all things. Now, why do I I say that? Well, one, it's really good news that we know that the king in the line of David has come in Jesus Christ. We know that. And he has lived and he has died and he has been risen. He is ruling. He has all authority on heaven and earth. He is ruling and reigning all things. Yes and amen. But as I said before, even though the king is ruling and reigning does not mean that we will not go through times of spiritual decline and drift the writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews chapter 2. Towards the back of your Bible if you want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 2. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. We can even go back to chapter 1 that long ago many times God spoke to His fathers, but now in the last days He speaks through His Son, Jesus Christ. That does not change. But why these warnings? Because drift is always a possibility. Just like Nehemiah. Just like the Jews in Israel. The ones who had the scriptures, just like we do. Even though we have the full revelation. Jesus Christ has come. He's, He's done everything he said he was going to do until he returns again, and yet we still can say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We have to be attentive to that, the drift, don't we? We have to be attentive to our own hearts, our own lives. That's why we, we, we gather together as the church. That's why we, we meet in city groups. That's why we, we have DNA groups to hold each other accountable. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we read the scriptures and pray and, and do these things, these, use these means of grace. Why? Because prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. To leave the God I love. It's in all of us. It's in all of us. And, and, and so when we get to the, when we see Nehemiah as, as a whole, I think all of these things are just warnings that we can go adrift. But yet, there's one who sits on the throne. The one who's still at work with his people Always and forever. So what are, what are some of the things? Now I'm going to kind of dip right back in just for a couple application things and we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper. What are some things we can do? Is there anything we can do to help with the drift? Because <laughs> I don't want to just leave you hanging and say, well, yeah, you, you're going to drift at some point. Well, how do you fight off the drift? And I think Nehemiah actually in the whole book gives us a lot of clues on how to do that. Well, one, a very obvious one is worship. Right? The mission um, of rebuilding was predicated on restoring right worship in the temple, right? Again, we're New Testament people. I mean, it's not you know, there's nothing magical about this building. It's just brick and cement and it's not about the location you people worship God under a tree or by the ocean or in a house or in a steeple. It doesn't matter what kind of church you're in necessarily. I mean, it's not, there's nothing magical about the actual geographic location. But where the presence of God meets us is when the body of Christ, a people, come together collectively. That's where the power is. Like, it's really hard for us. I'll just put my cards on the table. It's really hard for us as individual Westerners to get this idea of family and community. It's really hard. Like, only in Western America and Europe do we have this very individualized Christianity. You go to other countries, it's not like that at all. I mean, we used to do a lot of mission work in, in Mexico, and it's, it's just, fam- it's, you're, you're a family. Like, you don't think me and what's my needs. It's, it's like, what's the needs of we? <laughs> But worship is such an important key that doing that collectively. Now we know, Romans 12, we're living sacrifices. We, need, we we can worship God on our own wherever we are, of course. Read the scriptures, pray, yes and amen. Andy and I were just talking about that today. It's just like there's, there's something about when you, you find yourself kind of in a funk like in the middle of the day. Like sometimes it's just saying a prayer or putting on some music or just kind of re- resetting our hearts towards God. Maybe it's... You know, listening to some Christian music, I mean, certain kinds, but, you know, just kind of recalibrating our hearts toward God. So worship is, is a huge thing, and doing that together with God's people. And then I think flowing into that is, is the Word of God, right? I mean, Nehemiah, the, 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 he, Ezra comes and he opens the Word of God. It's really interesting, that as he opens the Word of God, he also explains what it means, <laughs> like a good preacher would do. So we need times where we're saturated with the Word of God. And again, a lot of that happens here on Sundays, but that's why we do city groups we want. We want to expose you to the Word. Sometimes it's just a, a, it may not be super deep or super long, but I mean, it's a question, it's a thought. It's, it's Man, I haven't really thought about that. How to apply the Word of God into our lives, DNA groups, men's studies. Uh, the ladies just launched a, a new women's study, right? We're just finding avenues and ways to get in touch with and encounter the Word of God because it's living and active. And it's not so that you can be right and everyone else can be wrong. That's not why we study the Bible. It's so that we could have actually wisdom for living and we can actually know the God that's revealed in the scriptures. It's one of the main ways that he speaks to us. That we've got to shift this idea that the Bible is some kind of weapon. So I can argue apologetically on the internet and no one's listening anyway but it's wisdom for living. It's, it can change your life. It can change your desires. It can change the way in which you relate to God and with each other. It can help you fight sin, right? Memory, memorization and, and meditation on, on the word of God. All of those things are means of grace that God uses to help us become more like him. Help us become more like him. It's not just doctrinal correctness. We're all for that but it's communing with this God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. So the word of God is, is huge, <clears throat> but the word also leads us to, as we saw in Nehemiah, repentance, right? You, you want to learn how to confess sin? Just read the Bible. Right? I mean, you're like, I don't know, you know, how do I, where am I struggling? Oh God, search me, right? Start reading the Bible and go, okay, my life's here. The Bible says this. They're not there, right? Oh, jeez, Lord. Yeah, I, I, man, I... He, Ephesians 5 says to lay my life down, serve my wife. Geez, I didn't really serve her today. I was like, what's for dinner, hon? No, I don't say that, but... <laughs> but, you know, there are times where I'm just like, I didn't really serve her. I was just thinking about myself, right? I, you know, I'm called to... man. To, train and teach my kid. Man, I'm not doing really good at this. I, you know, I had some lustful thoughts over here, right? I mean, you, you start meditating on Scripture, right? You have all kinds of things to confess, right? All kinds of things to lay before the Lord and go, go, Lord, help me. Forgive me. Right, so the, the word is always central. To that it always leads to repentance, but then it leads to obedience. How do I how do I live from that? How, what is God asking me? How is He asking me to live? What is He asking me uh, to 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 do or say to maybe another friend or or a coworker? Right? How how do I live in my 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 work each each week and in my family and in my my neighborhood, which will also lead you to prayer. I think word and prayer always seem to go together very beautifully. I don't know what to pray for. Read the Bible. Sometimes prayer leads you to the Bible and vice versa. Meditating, reading. I think even reading the Bible more slowly is very important. Kind of sitting with it, soaking in it. Because then what? You have all kinds of things to pray about, don't you? Thank you, Lord. I mean, thanks should just be on our lips all the time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your... The sun's out. For a guy from California, when it snows, it's not good for my soul. Like, thank you for that little gift of mercy. I know he wasn't just thinking about me. He might have, but, you know, I mean, it was a little gift, right? I don't do good under 30 degrees. I just don't. I don't know. Just me. Thank you for this, this wonderful meal. Thank you for this, this new child. Thank you for my husband or my wife. Thank you for, for the job that you've given me. Thank you for the house that I get to live in. Thank you for, for whatever it is. All these things lead us to thanksgiving. They lead us to prayer. They also lead us to confess sin. They lead us to, to all kinds of things. Hey, there's some people in our church that are hurting and they need healing. Lord, I pray for them right now. They're all connected together. And then I want to leave with this. Uh, well, I'm actually stealing a phrase from um, Raymond Brown, who um, Andy might have mentioned him last week. He's a, a former pastor, theologian. Um, and he, he calls this, it also leads to scriptural holiness. Scriptural holiness. Because sometimes we think about holy lives, and it seems very ethereal. Like, what does that mean? Like, is there a glow? Like, holy, like I'm holy. I wear a white robe, Right? But he says, when we look at Nehemiah, scriptural holiness is a lot more earthy. (laughs) It's a lot more on the ground. It's a lot more has to do with your daily living. And let me read this because I can't say it any better and I'm not even going to try. But here's what he says in in his commentary on Nehemiah he says, inevitably and essentially, it will issue in, in holiness of life. Nehemiah's book is about scriptural holiness. As God's prescribed pattern of life for the believer, it's about holiness in the intimacy of daily personal living, reflected in prayer. We see Nehemiah praying like crazy nine different times. Demonstrated in surrender, expressed in service. Right? How many times did you see him when there's a problem, a need? He's he's like, "Hey, here we got to we got to fix this. There's service that needs to happen. We got to, you know, um, get the troops together and do something about it." It's tested in conflict. Nehemiah, all kinds of conflict, right? Every time he wants to do something, oh, you know, Tobiah shows up. Hey, what are you doing? Um, Manifested in love and proved in perseverance. In the modern world, the holiness of a believer's life continues to be one of the most potent and persuasive evangelistic instruments. Nehemiah's message reminds us that holiness is not a compartmentalized commodity reserved for churches and Sundays. It was a holiness not narrowly confined to Jerusalem's temple, but meant to be evident in Israelite business practices and domestic affairs. A holy people is the best advertisement for a transforming message. That's the kind of holiness I can get on board with. It affects your business. It affects family life. It affects how you deal with money. It affects how you serve, how you love. It affects the neighborhood in which you live in and the people you interact with. It affects your dreams, your visions, your plans, your, 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 your how you see what is success and how life is to be lived. Your holiness and my holiness. And if we could say with Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength, if we could become a people like that, it will be the greatest advertisement of who God is and what he does and how he transforms an ordinary group of people. Now we're always looking for the next gimmick. We're always looking for the next resource, the next curriculum, but it's in the lives of God's people that we put on display to say, this is who God is and this is what he's like. And granted, we do it in very imperfect ways, of course, and we drift just like our brothers and sisters of old. And it's why we need God's grace and why we need God's spirit every moment of every day. And so every week we have the the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. And as I was thinking about Nehemiah and just kind of how it all kind of ends, you know, it can feel a little hopeless. But but I think there's a lot we can learn that, that God is always at work and God's grace is always greater than our sin, which is always good news. And I've I've read this text many times, but Hebrews chapter 4, when I think of temple worship, I think of the priests and this language of priests. The writer in Hebrews in chapter 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That The writer of Hebrews describes coming to God, his throne, as a throne of grace. Unmerited favor. That we're not worthy to come. That we are just like Israel. That one day we say, yes, Lord, you are my all in all. The next day we say, I don't even know who you are. It may not be that extreme, but we know in our hearts that they go crazy, don't they? Prone prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But thanks be to our high priest that we can come to his throne of grace. Every Sunday you come to the table not because you fixed yourself up or because you're good or worthy, it's because he's worthy and he's done everything that you and I couldn't do for ourselves. Now I would encourage you, lay those things down before you come. Confess your sin. Confess the things that that are getting in the way of walking holy with God. We know what those things are. But come running. It's a throne of grace. God doesn't treat us as we deserve. And I'm so thankful for that. Because none of us could come, right? None of us measure up. But it's by his mercy and his grace that he makes a way. So if you're a believer in Christ, we want to invite you to come to the table. The way we take communion is we break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the cup. There'll be two servers in the front. If you need any uh, gluten-free, algae-free, nut-free bread, free-of-everything bread right there in the middle. We're not even sure it's bread, but um, you can pretend it's bread. Um, Just kidding. And uh, if you're not a believer in Christ, we have prayers in our city life that you can look over and reflect on. Um, We've all been there. We, we've all had questions and hang-ups and, and, and reasons why maybe we don't follow Christ and, and, and all this seems like unicorns and fairies, but we've all been there. And so there's some prayers. If you want to talk more about that, I'd love to chat with you. One of our elders would love to chat with you. Please please come and, and, and talk with me. So so with that, let us uh, let us pray and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we could look for a few weeks at Nehemiah and your people of old and find a little of ourselves, or we could say a lot of ourselves in them. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. But God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that even in our wanderings, God, you never let go of us. Even in our unfaithfulness, God, you are faithful every way and every day and every moment. That we can come running to your throne of grace this morning. And it's not because we're good. It's not because we're worthy. It's not because we had a great week, but because you're good and you're worthy and you are holy and you are just and you are faithful, God. So we come to you this morning in faith in your son who did everything that we could not do for ourselves, the perfect high priest who didn't need to make a sacrifice outside of himself, but became that sacrifice. who became our sin offering. Fully man and fully God, the once and for all sacrifice so that we, as your people, could come and say, yes, Lord, you are my Lord and my King. That we could come running to your throne of grace and you would call us friends. You would call us your children. You would call us sons and daughters of the king. So thank you, Lord. God, as we leave this place today, we we pray that where there's drift, that you'll show us those places. We thank you for these means of grace that we can use to help us with our drift. And thank you for our family of God that we can walk right in the midst of our drift together. So bring renewal, bring revival, bring hope to this church and every church in Kansas City and around the world that we could experience more of you, God, and see more of your light shine in our cities. We pray this all in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.